Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, He's No Friend of Caesar. For Palm Sunday, or as it is sometimes called, Passion Sunday, the sixth Sunday in Lent, April 5th, 2009. <clears throat> For three years, Jesus crisscrossed the villages of Galilee, teaching in synagogues, preaching the good news of God's kingdom, and healing the sick. Thousands of people trampled each other just to get a good look at him. Luke 12, verse 1. Some people responded positively for reasons that were both good and bad. Many others responded with rejection, resistance, and unbelief. To say that at the end of those three years he was a controversial figure would be a gross understatement. Toward the end of those three years, we read that Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. When he entered that city for the last time, knowing full well that betrayal, persecution, and death awaited him, it's easy to imagine that he was greeted by his largest and most boisterous crowd ever. What we call his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday triggered the beginning of the end for Jesus. What began on Sunday with a religious procession ended Friday morning with a public display of state terror. Excited children waving palm branches were quickly forgotten when violent mobs shouted death chants. The adulation of the crowds evaporated into abandonment by his closest friends. By Good Friday, Jesus' disciples argued among themselves about who was the greatest. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied even knowing him. All his disciples fled, except for the women. And Rome employed all the brutal means at its disposal to crush an insurgent movement. Rendition, interrogation, torture, mockery, humiliation, and then a sadistic execution designed as a calculated social deterrent to any other troublemakers who might challenge Rome's imperial authority. Jesus' triumphal entry into the clogged streets of Jerusalem on Good Friday was a deeply ironic, highly symbolic, and deliberately provocative act. It was an enacted parable or street theater that dramatized his subversive message and mission. He didn't ride a donkey because he was too tired to walk or because he wanted a good view of the crowds. The Oxford scholar George Caird characterized Jesus' triumphal entry as more of a, quote, planned political demonstration, end quote, than the religious celebration that today we so often sentimentalize. Because the Roman state always made a show of force during the Jewish Passover, when pilgrims thronged to Jerusalem to celebrate their political liberation from Egypt centuries earlier, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan imagined not one, 
but two political processions entering Jerusalem that Friday morning in the spring of A.D. 30. In a bold parody of imperial politics, King Jesus descended the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem from the east. In fulfillment of Zechariah's ancient prophecy, Look, your king is coming to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew 21, 5, Zechariah 9, verse 9. And then, from the west, the Roman governor Pilate entered Jerusalem with all the pomp of state power. Pilate's brigades showcased Rome's military might, power, and glory. Jesus' triumphal entry, by stark contrast, was an anti-imperial and anti-triumphal counter-procession of peasants that proclaimed an alternative and subversive community that for three years Jesus had called the kingdom of God. Jesus, in fact, was executed for three reasons. We read in Luke 23, 1 and 2, We found this fellow subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. In John's gospel, the angry mob warmed Pilate, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. John 19.12 People today argue about who's subverting our nation. A friend in Florida forwarded me an email that blamed Muslims in America for our problems. Others attack evangelicals as Christian fascists. For a long time, conservatives have taken aim at secular humanists and liberal democrats. On his nationally televised program, Jerry Falwell, now deceased, blamed the wickedness of pagans, abortionists, feminists, gays, lesbians, the ACLU, and people for the American way for the 9-11 disaster, which he construed as God's judgment. Tele-evangelist Pat Robertson, a guest on this show, nodded in agreement. Well, I totally concur. Rush Limbaugh, the greed of corporate executives, and the sleaze of Hollywood movies all make easy targets. But I have never heard anyone say what the Gospels say, blaming Jesus that Jesus is the one who is subverting our nation. But that was the allegation that sent Jesus to Golgotha. What exactly were Jesus and his first followers subverting? We know that the earliest believers were called atheists because they refused to participate in Rome's cult of imperial worship. They were also called a third race that distinguished itself from the first race, Greeks and Romans, and the second race, Jews. The question deserves a lifetime of reflection, but a simple summary by Borg and Crossan makes a good beginning. A 
According to them, Jesus' alternate reign and rule subverted major aspects of the way most societies in history have been organized. Whether ancient or modern, most societies have normalized a status quo of political oppression that marginalizes ordinary people. Economic exploitation, whereby the rich take advantage of the poor, and religious legitimation that insists this is the way God wants it. It's easy to think of other components of the cultural status quo that Jesus might also subvert. Ethnic stereotypes, media propaganda, gender roles, consumerism, our degradation of planet Earth. And so, on Palm Sunday, Jesus invites us to join his subversive counter-procession into all the world. But he calls us not to just any subversion, subversion for its own sake, or to some new and improved political agenda. Rather, Christian subversion takes as its role model Jesus himself, about whom we read in Philippians 2, 5-11, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. For books this week, I review Peter Galbraith, Unintended Consequences, How War in Iraq Strengthened America's Enemies, New York, Simon & Schuster, 2008, 203 pages. In its ignorance, incompetence, deceit, and fervent ideology, Peter Galbraith is the sort of career foreign diplomat that the Bush administration willfully ignored when it invaded Iraq in 2003. Since graduating from Harvard, Oxford, and Georgetown, Galbraith has spent three decades in government service, most notably as America's first ambassador to Croatia and a United Nations diplomat in East Timor. He's been an adjunct professor and lecturer at the National War College. His earlier book, The End of Iraq, 2007, received widespread acclaim for its analysis based upon Galbraith's decades of experience in the Middle East. Despite what the Bush administration told the public about its rationale for a war of choice, we now know that Iraq did not possess WMDs, that Saddam Hussein was not involved in the 9-11 attacks, and that Iraq was not a base for al-Qaeda, although it became one after the war started. The later justification of producing a democratic Iraq has failed miserably. In fact, on almost every count, says Galbraith, Peter's, uh, Bush's war produced the opposite results of those he intended. Whereas Iraq did not have WMDs, 
North Korea, Iran, and Pakistan have grown as genuine nuclear threats. The war on terror has emboldened terrorists and swelled the ranks of their recruits. The agenda for a free democracy, says Galbraith, now has U.S. troops fighting for pro-Iranian Shiite theocrats and alongside of unreformed Ba'athists. The attempt to marginalize Iran has made its influence in Iraq stronger than it has been in 400 years. Syria is now more bold, not more threatened, and Israel is less rather than more secure. Turkey has been transformed from one of America's biggest supporters to a nation of virulent anti-Americanism. The shock and awe of American superiority has revealed gross failures of intelligence, planning, and politics. American prestige has been squandered. Five million Iraqis have been displaced, and at least 100,000 killed. The Republican Party in America decimated, and our country floundering. And when he left office in January 2009, Bush did not concede that he had made any mistakes. In Galbraith's analysis, the central problem in Iraq rests in the deep divisions between and among Shiites, Sunnis, Kurds, and even those who remember a good life as secular Iraqis. These groups, says Galbraith, have irreconcilable differences and are merely biding their time until the next civil war. The army and police are highly sectarian. There are few mixed neighborhoods anymore. Kurds will never agree to be integrated into a centralized and unified Iraq, and nor should they in Galbraith's view. In short, as he argued in his first book, reality dictates that there never will or can be a unified Iraq. President Obama intends to remove most American troops by the year 2010. But in his book, The Gamble, 2009, Thomas Ricks quotes sources that envision American troops in Iraq until 2015, in which case we are only at the halfway point of America's greatest foreign policy blunder ever. Even more ominous, says Thomas Ricks, the events for which the Iraq War will be remembered probably have not yet happened. And that's the cause for which George Bush squandered American lives, money, and global prestige. Peter Galbraith, Unintended Consequences For film this week, I review Days and Clouds from the year 2007. It's a movie from Italy. Most of the days in this domestic drama are cloudy indeed. Elsa has just finished her art history degree as her midlife project. Her husband Michael threw her a party, then afterwards broke the news that, in fact, he hadn't worked in two months because he was fired. All the feathers then hit the fan. They must sell their house and boat, take jobs far beneath their station in life, battle emotions of fear and self-hatred, 
negotiate issues of family and friends, and decide whether to choose fight or flight. Days and Clouds won 15 awards in the Italian equivalent of the Oscars, but I thought it dragged along rather predictably for too long, 115 minutes, and then concluded rather blandly. Still, even though the story might be cliched, it's certainly not a cliché for people who experience what they do. And in this sense, the film delivers deep emotions. In Italian, with English subtitles. Days and Clouds. And finally, for Palm Sunday, we've posted a poem by G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton lived from 1874 to 1936. The title of the poem is simply The Donkey, and in it, Chesterton captures Palm Sunday from the perspective of the donkey that Jesus rode. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. G.K. Chesterton, The Donkey Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Palm Sunday, April 5th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.